We're going to have the scriptures on the uh, screen, and so I'm going to I'm going to wait on the reading of Hebrews, and we're going to go to the the sermon, and so flip that next get to the next picture with the guy that's outside. There you go, right there. This is the theme for today. We live in peace. And if we have peace in God, we have peace in everything. So how, just, just raise your hand if you've ever heard someone say, or you've thought it or said it yourself. It doesn't matter. I, I can be a lot closer to God in nature than in church. Maybe you didn't say it yourself, but you've heard people say it. Very few of you have. You will. Uh, this guy's getting some peace. He's looking out. There's, if you, you can't, maybe can't tell, but there's way off in the distance are, is a city. But he's gotten out of the city, sitting on a high place, and he's thinking and praying and meditating, and he's got some peace. Uh, I bet you get more peace when you're outside, maybe, in a nice weather day, in a beautiful, quiet place. Would you rather go to the beach and listen to the waves and walk along to get peace or a mountain? If it's a mountain, raise your hand. Go to the mountains and see the beautiful forest. Okay. If it's a beach, raise your hand. All right. If it's neither, raise your hand. See, that's, that's two places we go for peace. And we go back. And we go back. And we go back, don't we? And if you know a trip is coming up where you're going to get to go, to the mountains for peace or to the beach for peace, you're pretty excited because you're looking forward to how it makes you feel. You know why? Because we need peace and we love peace and it brings peace and we feel close to God. And you know what? Rather than the preachers stand up here and say, oh no, you're not close to God when you're in nature, I'm going to say the opposite. You are close to God, you're close to His creation. And running around in our cars and in our houses, away from nature, kind of closed in in the man-made things, we can reduce our peace that God intended for us to get as we commune, commune with him in nature. When he made the world in six days and made Adam and Eve, he didn't make buildings and cars and computers and all that. He made what we have outside. And it's a very close thing with God for us to commune with him in nature. But ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin, it's not enough. This isn't enough that this guy's doing. As soon as he gets up and gets in his car and drives back to town, that didn't give a lasting inner peace that's durable because that man that's sitting there is just like you and me. He's got problems. He's a sinner. I'm a sinner. And the peace inside is upset by some root basic things because we make mistakes, willfully sin, and sometimes by nature we confess that in our confession we sin. We have guilt. We have a lot of things, but I'm going to name three. Guilt, fear, and what was my third one? I'm going to find it. Guilt, fear, and anger. And those three things are the big three that wreck, they're the, the unholy trinity that wrecks our peace guilt, fear, and anger. So, you look forward to going to the beach, you look forward to going to the mountains, do you look forward to going to church? 
If you see church as giving you peace, you do. But if you see church as taking it away from you by giving you guilt or not dealing with your fear or not having an answer for you to resolve your anger, then you might think, I, that's, that's not a place for me. But you're here, and I'm here. And we're, we're, we're getting down below the, the, the surface. Why, why is Jesus and coming to church so important? Why does mom and grandma say, get to church? It's so we can have that spiritual peace that we long for, that we're looking for. And Jesus is everything about bringing that peace. Now, what we're about to do as an assignment for me as a teacher and an assignment for you as a congregant for this next 15, 20 minutes is we're about to look at a passage of Scripture from the New Testament that is intricate. Another way to say it less positive is it's complicated. So my task is to try to make it simple and to demonstrate to you how it gives you peace to know this passage and why the, the inspired writer of the book of Hebrews wrote it. Now, the book of Hebrews is one of the most intricate, complicated books. Get this, it's called Hebrews because it was written to Jewish people. Another name for Hebrew is Jew. And Jewish people studied their Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. It was just their Bible. They called it the Holy Scriptures. They studied it more than most of us study our Bibles. They knew a lot, but they were not trusting Jesus enough. So the writer wants to help them in their faith that Jesus brings them salvation and peace. So he writes this letter that makes it into the New Testament, which is our Bible, but he's talking to a people that are a little different than you because these people have an intimate knowledge of the Bible of their day, the Old Testament. You get it? Their, their Bible, our Bible, and if, if some of you aren't real familiar with the Bible, and I'm going to try to keep it simple and short enough, but at long enough that you grow in your knowledge and faith. Their Bible and our Bible starts with five books about the story of the beginning of the world, then the first people, and then the beginning of a nation called the Hebrews or Israel, Israelites or Jews. They're all the same people. Those first five books. And then there's a whole bunch of stories of how they lived their lives in the world and then there's a book called Psalms. P.S. It's like Pflugerville. The P is silent. Psalms. P.S.A.L.M.S. The Psalms was their hymnal, but it was all in an ancient writing. And they would sing the Psalms. Remember, for many thousands of years, they didn't have books. Nobody did. So the Psalms were known more than the book. Their holy scriptures, even though they studied that too. They knew the Psalms even better. So the writer that writes these Hebrews to say, Jesus gives you peace, he quotes from the Psalms in what I'm about to read to you. And I'm going to try to help you see how it's so beautifully put together to make us today, where we come from, to have the same peace that he wanted the original readers to have. Okay? So go to the next slide. 
this guy has two, he's standing in front of an incense on top of a, 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 a box, and on the box there are two golden statues of angels, and incense is going up, and he has a fancy vest on. Who is this guy in history? Not his name, but what's his office? He's the high priest of Judaism. Now, you've got to go way back in the Bible to, to understand this. There, for the book of Genesis, there was no high priest. In the book of Genesis is the beginning of the early people of the world. But after Genesis, in the book of Exodus, the high priest is introduced. Moses leads God's people out of captivity in Egypt, and he leads them to a desert, and then they're going to go on to the promised land. And in that desert, God takes, gets Moses up on a mountain, and he says, I'm going to give a new office among my people. There's going to be a leader, not you, Moses, you're the prophet. There's going to be a high priest, and your brother... Aaron is going to be the priest. So the first high priest was Aaron. We'll say that's Aaron, but that's just some artist's picture. And the first high, this high priest is going to be the go-between, between God, get your hand out of my cookie jar, and people. And he's going to tell the people that God is merciful, but that sin is serious, so sacrifices are, of animals are made for sin and you'll bring him to the priest. And when you bring him to the priest, God said this, he's going to sacrifice him with his helpers. He's going to take the blood and sprinkle it on that mercy seat. Once it, That's that place where he's standing. That table is called the mercy seat once a year, and that's called the Day of Atonement. And all the sins of the entire 365 days that came before are completely washed away. So you don't have to live in the past anymore. Now, in preparation for this sermon, I was looking up practical tips for inner peace, and I found a list of 10, and one of the big 10 that a practical counselor was saying was, don't live in the past. Let the past go. Well, God knew you can't let the past go with him, because he knows and remembers everything, unless he tells you it's forgiven. So he said, come once a year, and it's, he'll spread the blood and it will be forgiven, and it's atoned for. And it brought peace. And the Jews grew for thousands of years to love their worship. They came to the temple, and they got excited, and they even wrote psalms for their walks up to the temple about unity. Because look, if I'm mad at Mary, my wife, and she's mad at me, but we go to the temple and we sacrifice an animal and all the sins are forgiven, now we're in unity. And so there's beautiful Psalm 133, how wonderful it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's as if the priesthood is right there in your family, washing away your sin. Aaron is now your priest, the high priest, see. So they loved their worship. They believed in it as God, because it was handed down from God, and they should, except for this one thing. You had to keep going back to the priest to make another sacrifice at least once a year. But there were some in between if you wanted to or needed to. They weren't enough. Because God had always said there's going to, the, all of these sacrifices in the high priesthood is actually a pointer We'll do it this way. Pointing ahead to my son who's going to take care of it all someday and he will be the greatest high priest. 
That's the way the Bible works. That's the way the Jewish Bible works. That's the way the Christian Bible works. It's pointing ahead. But people had a hard time giving up church the way they did it. And their families couldn't believe, once they believed in Jesus as the great peacemaker, that they would leave Judaism and wouldn't go to the temple anymore and give an animal and shed blood. And they said, you've got to be you got to be wrong because you're leaving what God handed down to us. And so these Christians who were Jews at first, became Christians, had families drawing them back, were starting to go, uh, am I supposed to go with this Jesus thing? And is he really the fulfillment of the Old Testament? Or am I supposed to stay in Judaism? And they were not supposed to stay in Judaism because Jesus replaced it all with himself. And so Jesus is a high priest. So the writer... To the Hebrews, we don't know who it was, the writer writes this letter to preach to them, Jesus is your high priest. Now, the high priesthood was always supposed to be a descendant of Aaron. So the first thing in the reader's mind would be, "Uh uh-uh, because Jesus wasn't born of Aaron's family. He was born of a different one. He was born from the tribe of Judah. Aaron wasn't from that tribe. And so they wouldn't, they'd have a reason not to believe in Jesus. So what I'm about to show you, which is very intricate, is the writer says, hey, in your own Bible, the Old Testament, there are some passages that said God would someday raise up a new priesthood better than Aaron's, and it would be from a different man, Melchizedek. Now you're ready to look at the Bible verses with me, I think. It's pretty complicated. All right? Let's go back to the the verse right after the priest. Okay. So read this with me. He's talking about Aaron, but read it out loud with me, okay? Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. You can leave the slide there. It doesn't matter. That is the writer saying, okay, I'm on the same page with you. Aaron and his priesthood was appointed by God to make sacrifices for sin. You're right. Aaron was supposed to do that and his descendants. Now, next slide. Let's read it. The priest, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. The priest is a sinner. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. What he's starting to share with them is Aaron was God's man and all his descendants that were priests, except for this. They were sinners themselves, and so they had to offer for their own sins. So there's another priest coming who had no sin. He's helping them see Jesus, okay? Go to the next one. And no one takes this honor being high priest on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, the next three four words, in the same way, is he starting to preach Christ. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. Okay, stop right there. Leave that slide up. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to be the high priest. Just push all that Jewish religion aside. He didn't say that. He didn't take it upon himself. Now, the reader's going, yeah, but he's not from Aaron. God couldn't have appointed him. He's not from Aaron. So he had to do it the way that you're saying he didn't do it. And now the writer has a job. 
He has to prove that their Bible talked about Jesus ahead of time. That Jesus was appointed by God to be our high priest, to give us peace with God, to take away all of our sins. So here he goes. Let's go to the next slide. But God said to him, who? Jesus. Now this next quote, see the quotes? That's from Psalm 2. Remember the Psalms? They knew them better than the other books. God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. The whole Psalm 2 is about Jesus. It's a cool, it calls him a king. All right. The next Psalm is from Psalm 110. And he says in another place, where is that? Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, here's a cool thing. If they were Jews, they heard Melchizedek. They heard king of righteousness because that's what Melchizedek means. Melech is king and righteousness is Zedek. So they heard in another place he's called the king of righteousness. In other words, he ain't no sinner. So the the readers' minds are just spinning. I bet some of you have a mind that's spinning right now. You know why? Because you haven't been steeped in it, and you haven't been taught. In fact, there's there's a real neat, humorous, satirical way that the writer after this, we're not going to study it today, but this is what he says. I have a lot more to tell you about Melchizedek and Jesus, but you are slow to learn. You don't come to school enough. You don't read your Bible enough. And you don't want to sit and listen enough. You just want to get to the the point at the end. And he goes, I have a lot to tell you. And what he does is he puts it off until chapter 7 of Hebrews. Where are we? Chapter 5. So you got to go home and read chapter 7 and then ask Pastor Darren or me or somebody else, teach me more of this. So you're not slow to learn. But I'm not going to go in. I'm going to go in a little bit about Melchizedek here in a second, but not going to go into deep, just like the writer didn't, because I want to talk to you about peace and Jesus and what this writer's doing. So he says, in the Psalms, God chose Jesus when the father said to the son, you're my son and you're the king. And he also said, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He goes on to say, Jesus is the priest chosen in the priestly order of Melchizedek. Well, who's Melchizedek? He's a guy that gets that much of the Bible in Genesis 14. That much. There's nothing else about him. You don't know about his father, his mother, you know, Aaron, descendants, Jews keep up with genealogy. You don't know anything about that. And it's Genesis 14. I told you, if you were paying attention earlier, God didn't give him the high priest till after that in the book of Exodus. So in Genesis, we're a thousand years before, no, uh, yeah, we're 700 years before the high priest, Abraham goes to Jerusalem to tell them, I have freed you from the bad kings who came and took everybody captive. And the priest king of Jerusalem, it's actually called Salem at the time, he comes out and he says, thank you, thank you, thank you. And Abraham says, I'm going to give you a tithe because you are the priest king of the most high God. And to say thank you to God for protecting me in battle as I went out to save you, I'm giving you a tenth of all that I got in the battle and all that I possess. End of story. Melchizedek is never mentioned again until Psalm 110 
when God says there's going to be coming a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What city was Melchizedek a priest king at? Jerusalem. Where did Jesus die? Jerusalem. What did they put above his head? King of the Jews. He was the priest king who brought righteousness for all people. That's what the writer's trying to say. He's telling these Jewish people, in your Bible, there was a prophecy that this Jesus was going to come, not from Aaron, but from the same idea of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, and he's in that priestly order. And chapter 7 describes it more. Why is he so anxious to tell them? Their own Bible talked about Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. So they would know that he's appointed by God. So flip to the next slide. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Go to the next one. So though he was, son that he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. There are three things, I'm going to run through them quickly, that give us confidence that we're not in some made-up religion that didn't come from heaven. One is Jesus was called by God the Father from eternity to be his son, Psalm 2. And Jesus was appointed by God to be the replacement of the Jewish high priest that brought peace between God and people, Psalm 110, the king of righteousness. Jesus learned obedience by what he suffered. And be, look at that second line, once made perfect. This is that intricate, another part of that intricate teaching I've got to show you. When you hear once made perfect, you're going, I thought Jesus already was perfect. I didn't think he had to suffer in order to be made perfect. Well, that's a different way of speaking. You're using an English mind to try to understand a Greek concept because the New Testament was originally written in Greek. The idea of perfection in this word, in this place, in the Greek New Testament, is being brought to the very end of your goal. In fact, this is a translation that some pastors and, and professors are working on. And in this passage, this, this translation is what everybody uses today, the NIV. But in this translation, it sa- doesn't say once made perfect. It says, be brought to the goal, his goal. And this is accurate. So here's what it's saying. Jesus was born perfect, but he had to be tested to the very end that his perfection would stay perfect, that he would never sin. So God put the screws to him, and he made him suffer. And remember Gethsemane? Oh, if this cup could pass for me, nevertheless, Father, if you will, I'll do it. And then they came and arrested him. They started beating him, ripping out his beard, insulting him, cursing him, separating from his friends, saying terrible things about him to the public, getting everybody to yell, crucify him torturing him with a crown of thorns, beating him and scourged him. Then they took him to the cross and they killed him. And all of that was God's wrath for our sins because the priest was the lamb for the day of atonement. The priest himself was a perfect, spotless lamb. That's what the people used to bring to a high priest was a perfect lamb. But this man was perfect without sin and the priest himself was not only perfect, 
better than any other high priest, he was also the sacrifice better than any other high priest because they always received the lamb. And then he rose from the dead to say, God is on your side. God is with you. God loves you and he forgives you. And he's not, get your hand out of my cookie jar. Instead, God is, I am your savior and I will walk with you in your life. I'm asking you to put your trust in Jesus, me. I'm your high priest. I replace the Old Testament high priesthood, and you don't need that anymore because you got me. That's what this writer is saying. He's a better priest. In the order of Melchizedek, talked about in your own Bible. He's called by God, he's perfect, and he's merciful. Those three things. And we might think, because he's so perfect, he might not be merciful. And just yesterday, somebody said to me, they were in our neighborhood, and they said, your neighbors better watch out because they're living next to the pastor. They better live right. Now, you guys know me too well, but they didn't. Uh, we think stuff like that, humans, right? Well, what if Jesus were your neighbor? You know, you wouldn't be outside and you're shouting at each other going, shh, the neighbors might hear you. You go, shh, Jesus might hear you. Because he might be, get your hand out of my cookie jar. No, he's grace. And truth is, when you're going through a serious health problem, you wonder if God is gracious because he's letting you go through it. And he's not, it doesn't seem like he's fixing it fast enough, not listening to your prayers. What did I say are the three big things that upset your peace? Guilt, fear, and anger. And you get angry at God because you feel so right. You know, people that sin boldly and they're not going through what you're going through. And then you're not feeling like you're getting the answer. And you feel, well, maybe it is me. You need a priest who sympathizes with your weaknesses. Flip to the next slide, please. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't know how we're going to that one. So these keep going down. Keep going down. There, keep going down. Keep going down. Keep going down. Keep going down. Right there. Thank you. We have a high priest that's merciful. The, this verse, too, is, we've read it. It's talking about the Old Testament high priest. And look, it says, those guys that had that office dealt gently with people since they themselves were sinners. So you think, well, you've got to be a sinner in order to deal gently, right? You've got to be an alcoholic that's recovering to be gentle with an alcoholic that needs recovery. But Jesus was perfect. How could he help us? Well, our text, uh, excuse me, right before our text, Hebrews 4 says this. Let's read that bottom verse. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He didn't have to be a sinner, see? But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Before I read the rest with you, you have never been tempted like Jesus was. But he has been tempted every way that you have. He went beyond any human being, other human being, and reached his goal. But you'll never go that far. But he's been tempted every way that you have been. He knows everything. All those weaknesses and temptations that you have. So therefore, he, even though he's perfect, can, can be merciful. Let's read it. Let us then approach God's throne of what? Grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There are times that you are in a trouble, 
that you have guilt, fear, and anger, and you don't get help because you don't believe God loves you enough because you're so bad, or you don't believe he loves you enough because he's so bad, or you don't believe he loves because he's out to lunch, and so you don't really pray. You just sweat it, and you're hurt. But there's other times, by the way, this sermon is to help you pray now and have that confidence that you can come to him. There are other times when you're honest, you're believing, you're not seeing the relief, and then you start to wonder, is it all a lie, or is God really not that great after all? You're, you're, you're lost. Well, there's not in this place, but there's a place in the Bible you need to know about. It's 2 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul, who served the Lord as much like Jesus as anybody else could, the Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh, a health problem he could not shake even by prayer. And he said, I was in a crisis in my faith because I wondered why God would let this happen to me. And this is what he said. God visited me at the end of the third prayer vigil and he said, my grace is sufficient. You don't need relief from an earthly suffering because all of earth, whether it's going well or badly, is temporary. My grace is sufficient that promises you I love you, I forgive you, I'm with you, and I'm taking you to heaven. And Paul said, when I believed that, I understood that, my grace is sufficient. I learned to rejoice in my weaknesses. I learned to rejoice when people insult me. I learned to be at peace when I'm going through trials and tribulations and persecutions, no matter what it is, because I'm living under grace. It must be Right now, I've asked him to take it away. He didn't. must be what God has, says is best for me. And I let go. That's what he's saying. I let go. It's happened three or four times, maybe four or five, in talking with people as a pastor, that they've told me their story about how they were in serious difficulties, health, whatever, and they were fighting it, fighting it, fighting it, and they learned in prayer to completely let go. And they had to relearn it later. But they learned to let go. And the stress of trying to not accept it and to fix it was gone. And they got peace. Even though the circumstances hadn't yet changed. I struggle with that myself. I'm preaching to myself when I preach to you and say, this is the answer. There's peace when you know you're living under grace. God really does love you. You really do have a high priest. He really is listening to your prayers. He has no reason to run you off. He has no weaknesses that he has to deal with that keep him from helping you. God is real, and you can let go of your guilt because he's already paid for it. You can let go of your fear because he's going to work it out for your good. And you can let go of your anger because you ain't Jesus. He does, and, and, and the secret to you solving your anger is not you getting answers to your reasons. If you don't know, if you don't believe that, go to the book of Job. God never answered that man, and Job got peace. Because what God did say to him, said, you ain't God, and I'm in charge, and I've got your life in my hands, and I'm a gracious God, and I'll take care of him. Job, let go in repentance. Okay, when we started, we'll go to the last picture, please, Debbie. When we started, we said we live in peace. To me, this is a picture. That little deer is not worried about much at all, is it? 
is she? She has a shorter life than you. Deer only lived 12, 15 years. She's in a beautiful place. She's glad to be there. But she doesn't have faith because she doesn't have a frontal lobe like you do. She wasn't made with a soul like yours. So to have that kind of peace, you got to have this message proclaimed to you. And it gets in your head and in your heart, and it says God is on your side. And you can live in this peace. And you can go to places like this and sit by that water and see that deer and say, oh, this is so peaceful. But when you get up and you get in your car and you drive back to the city, you still have peace because you still have Jesus. Let's pray. God in heaven, we want that peace and we lose it between Sundays. Help me and all of your people here to cling to your proclaimed word that you're a high priest and that you're able to sympathize with our weaknesses and you're listening to our prayers and you will answer. Give us relief, but also give us grace. Amen.